The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Dave Irstein's going to go check the thermostat to make sure those two numbers match up or um, he'll know what to do if they don't. Did we find it? Look at that. Just like a pro. Kids, thank you so much. I preached this sermon at St. James, and it went a little longer than I had intended to do. And um, I'm going to try to shorten it up because I do think the length, if the sermon is too long, it might uh, take away from what I hope to get across this morning uh, from John 6. It's a big, it's a big chapter, 71 verses. There's a lot going on. And I need you to go there uh, to John 6. And I'm going to start just by reading, uh, just by reading a couple of things uh, from John, beginning with verse number 22. Uh, No, uh, Tricia read the miracle. uh, And then after the miracle, Jesus departs and the disciples go with him across the sea. Another miracle happens. And then it's the next day where we'll pick up the reading in verse 22. And the people don't know where Jesus got off to. I'm reading from the King James, which makes it really fun. Um, If you're reading from a more modern translation, you'll go, wow, some of those words aren't in mine. And they're not. Following day, when the people stood on the other side of the sea and saw that there was no other boat there save that one whereunto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Now verse 23, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. And after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they came unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the Father sealed. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. The word of the Lord. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, But for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now, Father, I pray that I might speak in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the very Word of God. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. It is with those words that Jesus imposes a question that every person who has ever walked the face of the earth must answer, for what do you labor? 
For what do you labor? Jesus says, labor not for the meat that perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. The question strikes deep because all of us have to work. It might be the chores of the child at home. It might be the student in school. It might be the honeydew list that waits for you. It might be the hard work of parenting, of those that drive to an office or to the mill. Regardless of your particular situation, Jesus wants us to be confronted with this truth, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed So I ask every one of you in this room, and I ask any that may be listening at home or will listen to this at another time, for what do you labor? For what do you labor? We might ask also, what does faithful labor look like? What does the labor that endures to everlasting life look like? And John 6 actually tells us. This entire chapter, it's a marvelous chapter with this great focus on Jesus, Lord. And then John spells it out for us. At the beginning of the chapter, faithful labor looks like feeding hungry people. But it also, for Jesus, looks like drawing faith out of his disciples because he's training those disciples, and he wants those disciples to understand that ultimately when he means he is the bread of life, what he means is that he alone is able to satisfy the deepest needs of every person who would come to him in faith. So it looks like feeding hungry people, it looks like drawing faith out of disciples and training. It continues then as Jesus has to resist temptation. And the temptation here, uh, after he feeds the people the next day, is very similar to the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness because it involves hunger. It involves the need for bread. In the wilderness, Satan comes and makes certain offers to Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. You're the Son of God. After all, feed yourself. In John 6... It is the people who are making an offer to Jesus. In verse 15, we're told that they want to make him their king. Of course you would want him as your king. I mean, the election cycle has started far too early. And already the politicians are pandering, telling us what they're going to do for our particular situation. Of course they want Jesus to be their king. He just gave them a free meal. And if he can do it once, why not be able to do it twice? And Jesus resists the temptation as he departs and goes off into the mountain alone. And of course then Jesus is faced with another temptation. As the next day they come to him and they say, Well listen, uh, we want you to feed us again and again and again and Jesus is faced with the temptation every church faces today in a consumeristic society. Do we pander to people? 
in order to keep the budget and butts in the seat that are needed in order to make the budget? Do we pander to the Christian consumeristic culture that dominates the United States of America? Jesus is faced with a decision. Do you put your labor into keeping crowds happy by giving them what they want, or do you run the risk of losing the crowd by not meeting their demand? And just as the politicians over the next uh, you know, year plus in this election cycle will make all these kinds of promises, and then after they're elected, people will show up at their door and say, well, you're ready to give us what you promised? And they're going to go, well, we really can't do that, but we're going to work real hard on it. But please vote for us again. Jesus is faced with a decision. Crowds happy, big crowds impressive. I can make a dent into my mission if I got all these people. Or will I do faithful labor and run the risk of losing the crowd by not giving them what they want? But faithful labor is more than resisting temptation. Faithful labor is also doing good. The good that Jesus does is to point out to the people that they are indeed working for the food that perishes and not for the food that endures to eternal life. That's what he says. We read it already in verse 27. That's a bold thing to say to hungry people who are wanting you to make them their king. But the faithfulness of Jesus continues as he presses in upon them a lesson from their own history and this lesson that Trisha read, or Angelo read from us from the book of Exodus, and he drops it into their lap. And as they themselves begin to refer to this lesson of how God fed their forefathers in the wilderness, what Jesus begins to explain to them is that he is the, indeed the true bread that has come down from heaven. Like manna that fell from God uh, from the heavens in the wilderness, so Jesus has been sent by God, not to turn, you know, loaves and fishes into an all-you-can-eat, you know, golden corral buffet where you can stay actually all day long, not like at the golden corral now, which can only stay for a period of time, but you can actually stay and Jesus will keep feeding you. He says, I am that bread of life who now is going to be able to feed you with food that doesn't perish, but with food for all eternity. Can you imagine that through one single person, the multiple kinds of needs that are deeply rooted in the souls of humanity can be met. And that's why the Golden Corral exists, right? Because somebody might want chick chicken, and somebody might want steak, and somebody might want Italian, or somebody might want Mexican, or you might want dessert, or or salad, and there it is. It's all there, a big buffet, and everybody gets to pick and choose, and Jesus says no. Your need is going to be met by me. I am the bread of life. Now you would think at this point Jesus would kind of ease up. But in fact what he does is that he pushes them away even further by saying one of the most offensive things that he could possibly say. I don't know what would offend you. I don't know what I'd have to say. I ho I hopefully, have I offended you somewhere along the way with the offense of the scripture, not just by me being me, which is at times very ridiculous, I know. But here Jesus 
is actually going to say to a group of people who want to make him their king something so offensive that his budget won't be met. (laughs) His building will be empty. Follow along as I pick it up in verse number 50. I think I'm going to probably start in verse number um, 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. The Jews, um, verse 52, strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Good question. Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except... You eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Listen, if you're a Jew... You know one thing for sure, you are not allowed to eat human flesh. You're not cannibals. Die if you may, but don't take a bite out of your neighbor's arm. There is potentially nothing more offensive than Jesus could say to this group of people. What does faithful labor look like? What does a faithful life look like? It looks like resisting temptation, but it also looks like doing good, even the kind of good that may offend people and push them away. It might be good, before we go any further, to note the parallels, because the parallels are referred to in this passage, the parallels between the history lesson Jesus is telling them and that they themselves refer to of Israel eating manna in the wilderness and the meaning of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Let's see, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six of them. The sermon is available in in print form if you want to get it later and and look it over again. But let me just run through. I'll do a little flyover with these. First of all, remember, Israel had a legitimate need in the wilderness. They were hungry. And the people Jesus is ministering to also have a legitimate need. They are hungry. Just as manna in the wilderness was both a provision and a test in the wilderness, Jesus, as the bread of life, is presented as a provision, and yet he stands there as a test that people have to receive in order for them to be truly fed. The provision of manna lasted until the day that Israel entered into the land of promise. The provision of bread that Jesus offers by he himself being the bread of life is going to take us all the way into the land of promise and by faith forever we will feast on Jesus. It doesn't, like Jesus doesn't end when we, you know, when the new heavens and the new earth come and then we're like we're on our own to do whatever the heck we want to do. No, the focus of faith for all eternity is feeding on the bread of life, Jesus. But remember, what was the response of Israel towards Moses when they received the manna? What did they do? They complained to Moses about it. And their complaining continued all the way 
And what was the response of, Je- of the people to Jesus? Well, they too murmur against him. You might remember that the very meaning of the word manna is uh, a question. What is this? What is this? I mean, if you've cooked a nice meal, right, the last thing you want is for people to come and sit down at the table and go, what is that? Just say goulash, because it, right? it's stew. Shut up, eat it, be happy, you know. Um, what is it? And this very discourse of Jesus presenting himself as the bread of life and, the, and this deep meaning of his flesh and his blood being eaten and that you have to drink it brings confusion to the people as well. And then let me give you one last comparison. The first generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt never made it into the land of promise, did they? Except for Caleb and Joshua. And as John draws this to a conclusion, he tells us two things. In verse number 66, he tells us that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more. And then he tells us at the end of the chapter that Jesus says, have I, verse 70, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? And then John comments, he says, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it is he that should betray him being one of the 12. You know, we should remember that when the Apostle John is telling us what Jesus is doing, John's not a press reporter kind of following along the popular candidate and writing down the stuff that's going on. This account of the Gospel of John actually takes place some 60 years after the event. And as John writes this, he is telling the world, he's telling us about Jesus of Nazareth who confronts the assumptions of people by imposing on them very difficult questions and very difficult scenarios like the question, for what are you laboring? For what do you labor? And then the question, will you receive him or will you not receive him despite of the offense that he brings? And then let us not think for one moment that we're just going to you know, hop, skip, and jump into the eternal fellowship, the land of promise, without first being confronted by the offense of Jesus. Churches are full today of people. I think they're safely in, have never once considered the offense of Jesus. In her book, Crucifixion, subtitled Understanding the Death of Jesus, Fleming Rutledge refers to an experience that Corey Tenboom endured when she was a prisoner at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Backstory, in case some of you don't know it, is that Corey, like many of the Dutch people, lost her family um, under the Nazi regime because they were hiding Jews. And they ended up in prison camps like Ravensbrück. And in her memoir, The Hiding Place, she recalls how the prisoners at Ravensbrook were required to strip of their clothes every Friday for what she called the recurrent humiliation of the so-called medical inspections, where the prisoners were lined up and they were not allowed to use their hands to cover themselves, but had to stand with their hands at their side. 
It was on one particular Friday that Corey, standing behind her frail and dying sister, Betsy, this thought came to Corey. He hung naked on the cross. He hung naked on the cross. And she, she whispered to her sister in front of her, they took his clothes too. The Reverend Fleming Rutledge then makes this observation. The details of the degradation of Jesus do make a difference. The offense caused by Jesus is not found in his incarnation. It's not found in the Christmas story. That's why so many Americans, in fact, that's why so many people in the church love Christmas. There's not much offense to it. But, but what Fleming Rutledge points out is this. The offense is caused in his humiliation. The offense of Jesus is caused in his humiliation. You see, the offense isn't found in the Gospels. If we read the Gospels as a nice stories about a nice man who was, you know, unfortunately mistreated at the end of it all, the offense is found when we put a crucified Jesus front and center, eat his flesh, drink his blood, the bread of life, we put him front and center, and then we're willing to make the hope of the resurrection along with the truth of the ascension of Jesus and his exaltation and his coming to judge the living and the dead as the core feature of our message. And in our present time, the proclamation of the offensive statement that the world can only be set right through faith in a crucified Savior who rose again from the dead, is largely missing in the lexicon of preaching. Churches in our region, full to overflowing of people, a therapeutic relational gospel, just wanting to meet your need. You need Mexican today, you need Italian today, you need chicken. We can be the golden corral for all the spiritual needs out there, but the offense of Christ is never spoken about. We must do better. We must, by God's grace, take up the offense of a crucified Jesus who hung publicly naked on a cross, his hands nailed to wooden planks so that he could not cover the shame of his own nakedness, his own humiliation. Let us take up the offense of a risen Lord Christ. Let us take up the offense of the ascended Jesus, Lord, seated at his Father's throne. Let us take up the offense of daring to say that this crucified, risen Lord is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We don't have to come up with clever things to say to offend people. We just have to speak the actual word of God as Jesus risked it on that day and did it on that day. This is what faithful labor looks like. So how do we take up the challenge? Well, two big lessons sit in this sermon. And one is we need to get a firmer grasp on how people are laboring and why their labors will fail them because it's very, it's very possible that in this body of people, some are thinking they're laboring, but they're not by faith. They're just busy with life, 
and their labor is going to fail them. But the second thing is we need to see how Jesus teaches us the right way to labor because we must labor for the kingdom. So this lesson that happens between the miraculous feeding of the people from verses 1 to 13 and the teaching of Jesus between 26 and 71 is very instructive. Again, I'm going to do a flyover, walk us through it. There's a, there is, after Jesus departs, the disciples are going to go to the, find him, and they go, and there's this, this great wind blowing across Galilee, which was very normal, and they're not making any headway, and Jesus meets them out in the lake, guides them safely to their destination. It's the next day. The people come. They want to know where Jesus is. And so they can't find them, but they see the disciples are gone. And so they too get in their boats and they go out across the sea. And it would appear at that moment that, that the people are laboring correctly, like they're seeking for Jesus as they come. And they finally find him. But then the question that they ask reveals something deeper, the something that is missing in their life. They say, well, and I love, again, I apologize, I just have this current thing going with the King James that I really like. You can read whatever translation you want. He says, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? I just love the language there. In other words, like, hey, how'd you get here? You know? Hey, don't come up to me if you see me in the circle. How, how did you come hither to this place? You know? Hey, how'd you get here? There's something in that question that's missing. But pick up the conversation in verse 30 to 36. As Jesus begins to um, push into them, they say, now this is just unbelievable. When Jesus says in verse 29, uh, this is the work of God that you believe on him that has sent, uh, whom he hath sent, they say to him, well, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? I mean, just think about this for a moment. What sign? Are you, like, are you kidding me? But it reveals something. It's like people who are in church and they sit in church, but they're not Christians. And I like go, what else do they need to hear? What else do they need to see? People that are just like out today, living their life, but don't see the hand of God. And all the blessing that is around that are like the Jews this day, like, well, what sign are you going to show me that I can believe in you? If you want me to believe in you, what are you going to show me that I can believe in you? You just got a free meal, and you got as much as you want, and you got it from a few loaves and a few fish. Religious people are always willing to fall back on their understanding because it's their understanding of their religious teaching, even though it flies in the face of reason, even though it makes no sense, this is what they've concluded, therefore this is what they are going to believe. And they are laboring for that which perishes. And Jesus gets in between this. And he immediately responds to them in verse number 32. Verily, verily, I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. They say, well, give us that bread. And Jesus says, okay, I am the bread. And if you come to me, you're not going to hunger. And if you believe in me, you're not going to thirst. 
And then Jesus says, but you've seen me and you haven't believed in me. Labor for that which does not perish. And what we find out is the something that is missing is faith in the someone, the one who is the bread of life. And as we learn from the light of God's word, we learn where to place our labors. For the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And if we follow that light, we come to faith in the I am, the one who is the bread of life. And we embrace him and we believe him. And that's, of course, John's key word. We believe that Jesus was indeed sent from God to bring salvation to the world. And we know that because man does not live by bread alone. That's what Jesus said to Satan. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where did Jesus get that from? He got it from Deuteronomy 8, 3, when God says through Moses to the children of Israel that they were humbled and they were suffered to hunger and that God fed them with manna, which they did not know and their fathers did not know, that he might make thee know that a man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth a man live. And just as the bread was a test for Israel in the wilderness, and Jesus was tested in his own wilderness temptation, the people are being tested along the shores of Galilee. That test sits in this room this morning. Do you actually believe that Jesus is the bread of life who can meet your every need, and that you are going to feast on him and take up the offense of Jesus so that you labor for the bread that leads to eternal life. So the opening question remains, but now we can add to it, for what do you labor? The second question is, have you been confronted by the offense of a crucified, risen Christ? And if so, have you surrendered your life to him so that you are laboring for the food that leads to eternal life? Or, 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 are you kind of like the Jews that day laboring according to your labors and not according to faith? And you can't have both. And if Jesus was willing to push the crowd away, don't think for one moment that you can't be pushed away either when you come up against the offense of Jesus. The confrontation between darkness and light is as real today as it was then. I ask you again, for what do you labor? For that which perishes or that which is eternal life? Father, I give you thanks for the message that you've granted us to hear today. And as we think on it, may we by faith respond to it with real obedience, holy reverence, true humility. In the good name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. 
For more information about Durkee Town, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.